You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Here we are, Nick. Episode... 35. I should really take note of the episode numbers for once in a while. Hey, how good... Was the weekend the Mighty Hawks footy's back? The Mighty Hawks, amazing win, come back from forty points down at halftime. You and I, we were dedicated to to watch the Hawks on Saturday night. Yep, and you walked away at halftime. Well, I thought we we were done. I thought it was over. <laughs> I thought it was over. So I I left your house and came home. Yeah, and then I messaged you saying, "Are you watching this?" This is incredible. Yeah. It's just great to have sport back, local footies back, local sports are back. And look, what is it? The 23rd of March we're recording this part and I just heard that there's no coronavirus in Victoria and let's hope it stays that way. Amazing. It is. What a job we've done as a collective. I thought you were talking about you and me in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, no, no not, not just us, but uh, Victorians. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Life you, you, does feel like it's getting back to normal. Yeah, as hard as it was, and I'm sh- I think I think a lot of people had really horrible experiences coming out of it like this. Uh, it's a lot better to be here than say anywhere in Europe or America. Yeah, sure is. We've got an amazing guest this week. Yes, who is it? This is Hass Dalal. Although Hass is not actually his first name. No, it's not. What is his first name? Bulliant. Yes, well done. This one's a long one. It is a long one. We've actually split this into two parts um, because you cannot condense a man's life uh, to to 60 minutes and this man has done some incredible things for this country. Yes. So he was was actually born in Australia uh, to immigrant parents and you'll hear in his story how as a young child he tries really hard to belong um, both here and in Turkey, where his parents were born and raised, yeah. um, you know, he comes to this realisation at just 14 years of age that he, he decides to own his identity and that identity is Australian of Turkish descent. And as Hass says, you know, part of belonging is actually owning who you are. And what you're going to hear, and Nick and I were absolutely blown away by this, so... Over the next 50 years, Hass has dedicated his life and worked tirelessly to create what he calls a successful multicultural Australia. Because when you look across the globe, there's many, many examples of multicultural societies, but are they successful? And when he looks into Australia by comparison, he believes it's successful. And we do too. He has. He was actually the, the founding executive of the Australian Multicultural Foundation, was on the board of SBS for 10 years, chair for three years, recently uh, left that position. And as I said, dedicated his life to creating our uniquely successful multicultural country. You're going to be blown away by Haas and what he has done with all of his doing and the impact that he's made. Here is Haas Blake, do you like stories of people doing, 
I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe, and tell your mates because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make, and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. I thought he said I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Blake, how are you? Very well, thank you. And welcome to the D-Landers. Thank you very much. It's a great honour. Well, it is our honour. <laughs> it is <laughs> absolutely our honour. Yeah, how are you, Nick? I'm oh, good, thanks, Blake. Good when, to see you again. When we were researching you and your life and what you've done, we thought we might need out eight hours <laughs> to record <laughs> the, the myriad of amazing things that, um, that you've done. In fact, we like to ask all our, all of our guests, tell us, what do you do? I guess um, as, uh, well, firstly, I'm a human being and <laughs> and one that cares about um, society and people. And I guess what I do is try to better society uh, through my work, yeah. uh, through my passion and... Um, through everything I, I try to do, I guess, is, is about working with people and, and learning from people so that I can actually impart that knowledge with and share with others. And I, I guess I'm a human philanthropist. A human philanthropist. I love that. That is cool. We haven't had any human philanthropists on the show, so uh, you are the very first and we can't, can't wait to get into your story. So you were born in Australia... Your parents, your parents were immigrants. Yes. The eldest of three. So what was like life like for a, a young house growing up in Glenroy? Uh, look, uh, it was, I think, uh, a very colourful, rich and loving life, really, uh, mm. within my family. But child, child to um, a migrant family and uh, struggling dual cultures is not a, a new story for many uh, kids that have um, come from migrant families. Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess, like anyone else, you at an early age, um, you know that you've got this second culture, um, and, uh, and and it's interesting and it's rewarding because you're living it at home and and with your family, uh, but you're also are living in this other culture, uh, and that you want to be part of. Yeah. So trying to bring both together, you, you don't quite understand it when you're you know eight or nine, but you do know you want to belong. You do know you want to be part of something. And um, so you want to do the normal things that your friends at school do um, and not necessarily share, you know, those traditions and cultures that you may practice at home because it's not – you don't see it as normal in, in, in their circle So and you want to be part of that. Yeah. So you're constantly trying to normalise things in so many ways. Um, so – I guess it was a challenge uh, at the time, um, trying to understand all of this and and be part of something and be part of the group of you know friends at school and be able to do the things that they want to do to do or share or eat that they eat you know. Um, yeah, we were we were talking earlier about you know the 
the Vegemite sandwich oh. story. Tell us, <laughs> tell well, us that one. It, 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 well, it's, it's that, that part of that story of, of wanting to belong, I guess. It, it um, you know, like with all, well, in my case anyway, my mother did a fantastic job in preparing my lunches when we went to school, Glenroy there. And, uh, you know, you'd open up your, uh, your lunchbox and there'd be this wonderful, you know, uh, array of uh, exotic food, what others saw as exotic food, but you saw as just your normal food, um, layered different sandwiches or, you know, with different sort of eggplants and zucchinis and tomatoes and all that sort of thing. And then, you know, your friends and your school friends or your fellow school mates who were, you know, eating their hundreds and thousands of Vegemite sandwiches <laughs> and you thought, oh, you know... You, you felt different, and because people mm. were looking at these things, you know, looking at your lunch and saying, you weren't sure whether they were laughing at you or whether they really wanted a bit of it. They never said, "Can we taste it?" Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of yeah, what's that, you know, or how can you eat that sort of thing. Um, so I, I'll never forget. I guess one one time I said I, I had enough of this. I, I sort of um, saved up some pocket money and I gave it to my mother and I said, "Buy this thing called Vegemite." Yeah, my mother was just learning English. I mean, she, she, her English was all right, but it was a bit broken. Um, it's, it's Vegemite. So anyway, it, so the next day, here's me thinking that I'm going to have a Vegemite sandwich. And I said, make sure the bread's thin, you know, yeah. really thin. <laughs> none of this thick <laughs> stuff. None right. of this thick stuff. Thin bread. Anyway, uh, so I get to the school next day and I open up and it's the same same wonderful array of cultural food and I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe she didn't have time and all the rest of it. Anyway, just sitting in the yard and I'm eating away and then suddenly I, I realised these dogs, the school dogs, you know, they were just sort of wandering around, they were licking my boots or licking my shoes mm. and they found it really tasty and I hadn't realised she actually used it as uh, boot polish <laughs> on my shoes. <laughs> so, because <laughs> I bent over and I sort of tasted my shoes and I thought, oh, my God. This is the Vegemite. <laughs> so you're trying to hide this with your school friends. are thinking, what are you doing? Why are the dogs licking your shoes? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so you sort of make up the excuse to run away. Your head down, you know, well, what the hell? <laughs> so I guess it, it's, it's just one of those things that you, you know, well, when I look back at it now, I, I just think it was just Wonderful. I just yeah. thought it was a great experience <laughs> so when you think about it. I mean, how many kids can talk about that? Yeah. And I didn't say anything. I just left it at that. Right. <laughs> that was it. I was saying at home, nothing. Did you ever get a Vegemite sandwich? Oh, yeah. Later on, I got yeah. Vegemite sandwiches. And then uh, my next door neighbours used to have these great sausages, you know, sausage sizzles, and they used tomato sauce. I said, I want some tomato sauce. So my mum used to get tomato paste. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I used to get tomato paste on, on this piece of bread bread and meat uh, and I said oh why isn't this tasting the same as yeah, that and it's yeah. not sweet yeah. uh, but well, you know they're the trials and tribulations and, and, and you sort of grow up with that when you sort of think back to that and you feel well that's actually helped shape your life in lots of ways it, mm. it's sort of given you uh, that strength or because how how would you know how to react to a situation if you weren't really living it you know yeah. um and then I look back and how did I react? You know, what did I do? All right, yeah, I felt a bit, you know, dorky and I felt a bit silly and I felt a bit unwanted. Uh, but that made me grow stronger. Yeah, we, and we were, we were talking earlier and talking about growing stronger. You know, in Australia, we're not an overly uh, parochial people, mm. but come Anzac Day, 
you know, I think there's this more than any other day in Australia, there's this sort of coming together and, you know, people f- feel particularly Australian. It was a pretty challenging day for you as a, as a child. Yeah, yeah, well, look, it was, I, I guess, because we're of Turkish descent. So mm. in those days when I was growing up, it was nothing like the camaraderie that we have today yeah. between Australia and Turkey. I mean, really, when you think about the situation, there is no other – I can't think of any other country in the world that is sort of a warring country, that, you know, in the past that, that you know, entered into war together mm. and have developed the level of camaraderie that you have seen between Turkey and Australia. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. You know, you, you, here's a country that's gone over to Turkey, to, you know, into the shores of Gallipoli. Um, and today when you look at that, the, 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 the relationship that's built, has been built out of that is just amazing. Mm. But I guess in the days that I was growing up, I was only eight or nine years old, that was still pretty much ripe in people's minds in Australia about Gallipoli. We were seen as the enemy. The Turks were seen as the enemy in yeah. the 50s and that's when my parents yeah. came, 48, yeah. and I grew up in the 50s here. So we were the enemy. So I guess, you know, there, there was, you know, prejudice and uh, around my family and, 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 and you know, and, and the fact is we were from Cyprus but we're Cypriot Turks um, but still the fact that we were Turkish was enough people would sit back and examine, you know, we say, oh, the Cypriot Turks, they're Commonwealth, you know, they're, and the, you're Turk. It didn't matter. It didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. You're a Turk. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. I mean, we, we lived our culture. We're proud of the culture that we came from. My parents were. We, we spoke the language at home and, and that was, you know, and my father migrated here to make a great future and to make his contribution to this country and, and, and to give us a, you know, a, a good home and, mm. and an opportunity for the future. But I guess one of the things he did realise, he, he could see how we were straddling these two cultures, getting to understand the Australian culture more and more, living in Australia more and more, but losing the Turkish side of it. And he felt that it, it was actually quite a... Um, a treasure to be able to have dual cultures or to have another culture mm. because that could actually uh, be very rich and rewarding, not only for you but also the host country or the country that you're in for the future. Um, so at the age of nine, he he felt that um, it was important for us to really understand who, who we were because he knew that we would be always trying to sort of balance this, you know, these these cultures and yeah. languages and who you are and what you are. So you're here in Australia, so you're getting a good understanding here, a good education, but what about your background culture? You'll always be asking that question, who you are and what you are and what's this all about. And we can only give you so much as a, as a mother and father. You really need to live it. So we went back at the age of nine, I think it was eight or nine, I went back to Turkey. I knew very little Turkish, but my parents had the foresight to put me into a, a school that um, also taught English at the time. And uh, so <laughs> I'll never forget, I guess, and this is going back to the, the Anzac story in a way. Yeah. Um, the first or second day I was there, these young boys or these students, Turkish boys, came up to me and said, oh, who are you and where are you from? And I said, from Australia. And they sort of looked at me. I said, but I'm of Turkish descent, so I, I, I don't know. I, somehow I realised I had to sort of throw that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know why, but I felt I, maybe it was because I wanted to belong again. Yeah. And um, so they looked at me and they said, "What? How, how can you be Turkish descent? What would Turks be doing, you know, in Australia? 
because there was no Turkish migration at that time. I mean, Turkish migration from the mainland started in 1968 here. Right, okay? right. The only Turks that were coming into Australia at that time were either from Cyprus or from other parts of the world, and it wasn't really mainland Turkey. So, um, so trying to explain this to them was, you know, very strange and complicated, I guess, and I didn't have a good background of it either as a child. So I kept saying, well, I'm of Turkish background. Look, here's my Turkish words. And they just sort of laugh at me, you know, and try to explain, oh, my parents are from Cyprus, they're Turkish. It just made the story even more complicated. They looked at me and they said, listen, you're an, you're an Australian. You invaded Gallipoli. You killed my grandfather. Oh. That's, you know, whoa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't kill your grandfather. <laughs> I wasn't even there. I wasn't even born. Doesn't matter. You know, that was that. They said, anyway, look, um, so we talked about these things and then I think in the second or third week they said, oh, you know, I felt they were trying to make me feel welcome. Uh, they said, we've got a game for you, you know. Uh, you want to play this game? And it's a war game. I said, oh, terrific, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll play the game. And they said, it's called Gallipoli. <laughs> I said, oh. <laughs> so there'd be about 10 or 15 young Turks on one side and me on the other. And I'd be looking at this and I'm thinking, I don't think this is going <laughs> to... <laughs> no, this game's only going one way. It's not going to work well. Yeah. And there was this other young guy uh, about my age... Um, and he was from Canada. Now, he was also, his parents migrated from Turkey to Canada, but he was born in Canada and he was back in Turkey as well. And I think the family may have had a similar sort of, you know, experience to give right. this young boy the experience. Yeah. So he was all, he's standing on the side. They never knew what to do with him, right? <laughs> and I looked at him, I, he said, what are you doing? I'm playing a game here. Do you want to be on my side? And he said, well, what is it called? It's called Gallipoli. And what's that? doesn't matter, mate. You're part of the Commonwealth. <laughs> you stay with me. <laughs> so he was a believer. Look, endless to say, it, it was, you know, the results weren't good. <laughs> you know, we used to get pummeled and pushed around and all the rest of it. And I just thought, oh, look, I've had enough of this. I, the, I used to talk to the teachers. I said, look, they're a little, playing a little bit rough and I don't like this. And, and he said, oh, no, man up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. They're just trying to make you feel welcome. You know, talk to them about other things. He said, talk to them about other things. What can I talk to them about? So I went home and I said to my father, what can I talk to them about? He said, well, talk about Australia. Talk about your experiences in Australia. So I, I brought back um, uh, pictures of a koala bear, a kangaroo, and also a, a little stuffed toy of a, of a kangaroo. So I thought I'd take this into the school as a show-and-tell thing the next day, which I did. And uh, they all gathered around, and even the Canadian bloke, you know, he gathered around too. And um, and I'm showing these things, you know, the picture of a koala bear, kangaroo, platypus, and this little stuffed doll of a kangaroo with its pouch, you know. So what's this? And, you know, that sort of knew, but they didn't know. And I kept telling you, oh, this is the kangaroo, and this is the koala bear. This koala bear lives on this tree called a gum tree. It doesn't breathe in the air. It gets its air by eating the gums. <laughs> they go, wow, this is unique. <laughs> You know, uh, and then the kangaroo, I had one. <laughs> you had one? I had one. Right. And I used to hop in the pouch and go to school. And they thought, wow, this is something else. Yeah. But he says, but how, how big are they? I said, they're huge. <laughs> That's why I could fit in the pouch. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have taxis, we've got kangaroos, you know. <laughs> And right. so these guys, you know, they, they started laughing and they said, oh, you're a character, we like you. And, yeah. and that was it. They wanted to know the story. So I guess it was something I learned very quickly um, because, you know, 
then after living four or five years in Turkey, we came back to Australia. And um, and I'll never forget sitting at uh, out at Broadmeadows at a high school there at, in, um, in Keel Park area. That's where I sort of came back and lived in. Um, every year, the ABC used to put on these um, programs around Anzac Day, and we'd all have to listen to it, you know, in, in the class, and I think it was Form 3 or whatever, Form 2, Form 2 maybe, when I got back. And, um, and they'd go on about Anzac Day and the Gallipoli, particularly the Gallipoli segment, and then they'd turn around and say, and Johnny Turk... And every time that word Turk was mentioned, every eyeball in the classroom <laughs> turned to me and I thought, here we go again. I'm the enemy again, yeah. you know, I'm the enemy again. And I thought what the Turkish experience taught me then was that, right, you needed to really deal with this um, creatively, not aggressively. Mm. And and it was at that point, I guess, I started to realise that I needed to determine who I was and not mm. let others determine uh, who I was. For, for me, you know, to de- determine my identity. It was really important that I, I made a stance around, I know, called conscious, unconscious leadership, whatever it was at that age, 13, 14. But I made a point saying, look, no, I'm not going through this again and I'm not going to hide behind it. This is who I am. I'm an Australian of Turkish descent. That's my background. That's my richness. And actually that's what my father wanted to happen. That's yeah. what he wanted yeah. to happen, yeah. for me to stand up and say, this is who you are. Be proud of it. Move on. Don't let others determine who you are and who your identity is because mm. that's when you will get lost. That's an incredibly mature thing for a 13 or 14-year-old to, to think about and go, I'm going to own this. Yeah. yeah, Was it something that your father actually said explicitly or you've worked out in later years that that's what he was actually trying to do? I, I guess he didn't say it explicitly but he always – alluded around that you know and he, he always took interest in in who you know um how i was feeling whether it was in turkey or here right and um how i was coping with things and um he i, I think he he was very perceptive he he wanted to make sure that i did own it and i did realize it and i've always felt that if i didn't he would have stepped in yeah but he didn't need to he was there in the background, just watching, because he involved me a lot of in, a lot in his own community life. My father was a community person, yeah. community leader, and just sort of. What did in, that look like? Oh, look, he, he was you know he established the first you know Cypriot Turkish Association with a, a group of you know colleagues at the time, friends. He he got very involved in the social and active life, education, sports, all of those sorts of things. He was the first. You know, he, he was the translator or the interpreter for the Turkish uh, Olympics teams when they in, in right. Melbourne Olympics. Yeah. He was, um, I think, he had um, uh, an arrangement or where the Turkish government had asked him to to go to the shrine and, and lay wreaths and so forth on Anzac days as a representative because the Turks didn't have representative at the time, but they did send down send over army generals at later years. So. He, he was always up, you know, their profile, high profile, and, and just working for the good of the community to bring mm. the community together and also maintaining, you know, um, you know the contribution that the Cypriot Turkish community could make to the Australian community and also bridging those, you know, those differences and creating a better understanding between Australia and Turkey in those early days when, you know, when Gallipoli and... Anzac was pretty much high on people's minds at the time. Mm. So 
he played that sort of um, uh, role of education, educative, being educative, I guess, and, and also trying to build bridges and understanding at, at that early age. So that, I guess, had a big influence on me and the way I, I, I approached things. And, and I, I think um, I found it was really, at an early age, it was really important to break concepts that were narrow, you know, yeah. narrow, um, narrow focused and... And I, I, I guess at an early age, I found that it was important in, in place of fear. You sort of try to generate enthusiasm, you know, and, and sort of break that sort of break down small mindedness and, and provoke more discussion and, and openness. And I think that then allows for people to, to explore yeah. each other. Yeah. Uh, and you can do it at any age, really. Yeah. So you've, you've got this amazingly thoughtful father mm. who has travelled to Australia to, I'm going to say, make a better life. That might not have been the reason. But then thought, I need to make sure that my family is well-rounded when it mm. comes to the understanding of you know, the, their heritage. You've been involved and seen a leader, your dad, in the community. And, uh, and, and you've, you've said to yourself, well, I need to look at things that are... That are perhaps narrow and marginalised, and how do I how do I change that? So, as a seeing all of this and growing up as a teenager, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do with your life? Look, I not really at the time. All I knew that um, uh, I, there was a an element to me that was always fairly creative and mm. innovative yeah. um, in my approach to 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 looking at even problems and. And I guess one of the things I, I learned um, as, a, as, a, as a young in my teens, I guess, was to, um, and my, probably my father had a lot to do with it, was that I, I learned not to carry my mistakes with me. Um, instead, I'd sort of place them under my, my feet and use them as stepping stones so that I could actually move forward. Nice. Because yeah. I reckon if, um, I, I had this attitude, if it's good, it's wonderful, and if it's bad, it's an experience. Okay, yeah. Huh? It's a great attitude. Um, and I think that's come from all of these experiences of growing up in different countries at an early age. Because, you know, when we first went back, we didn't go straight back to Turkey. I lived in the UK for three months as a kid. Right. Before we travelled on the Orient Express into Istanbul, you know, and then, you know, just stayed in Istanbul for a while before we settled in Ankara in the, in the capital. Mm. And then we used to, from there, make that a base and, and travel around Europe and go to Cyprus here and there. So at a very young age, and, and on both occasions, we travelled by both. Oh, it wasn't plane. So you saw a lot of, you know, it took a month to get there and a month yeah. to get, you know. So you saw a lot of countries in between and you spent time in, you know, whether it was Cairo or Aden in those days, or Sri Lanka, all those you know, parts of the world or Italy and whatever. Um, so or France, so you started to really see a whole lot of, you know, uh, cultures, which I suppose stirred up my imagination and my creativity. And I was always interested in music, um, and I thought, you know, it just helped me. I think I, in, in the way I approach my work later on, the way I approach people. Mm. Um, I guess I had to feel comfortable in my own skin and, and one of the things, you know, 
people say, oh, what's leadership about? You know, what is leadership? And the first thing I always say is, look, you've got to learn to lead yourself before you even start to lead anyone else. And in order to lead yourself, you really need to understand yourself or accept yourself or really have so much more, you know, make sure that uh, you're living experiences all the time and learning from them. Um, because you never stop, you can never stop, you can never yeah. be complacent about it, yeah. um, and it just continually evolves. So I, I, I guess it's just, you know, it's been just one of those journeys for me, in my life. You said that music's always been a big part of your life. You went on to study music at the um, Melbourne yeah. Conservatory. That's right. Look, it, it was it was something that I really wanted to do, and uh, had an opportunity to do so. Um, and this, I think helped me understand um, uh, a bit more about who I was but also to give me the foundations um, to be even more creative, mm. um, to understand the, the theories, the, the, the concepts uh, and also to be sort of um, just be with people that were creative yeah. around you and, and I think I, uh, I learnt a lot from that. Um, I never thought I was going to be a great musician. What or, did you play? Uh, well, we, you know, I did voice, then you had to do second instruments of piano and guitar. And look, I realised at a very early age, you see all these great musicians around you, and you think, "There's no way you you, you you're going to." Well, I didn't feel I had that, you know, capacity to reach that stand. So, what I felt was the next best thing for me was to to use it in. I guess, social work or teaching music and be creative in the way I went about doing that. Yeah. And I thought that was my strength. Yeah. Um, although I enjoyed playing the music because I think that was more of a, a hobby, became a hobby and a bit yeah. of a relaxation. But I think for me, uh, I think it was really about the, the understanding the theories and the foundations of, of, of music, which really gave me a lot more... Um, creativity to be able to apply to a lot of other social issues that I was really concerned about at the time. Mm. Um, and that was about issues around, you know, um, social justice, um, opportunities for people in terms of their um, their education, uh, giving young people an opportunity to, to better themselves and uh, helping them to reach their aspirations in life. And I guess this is something that I, um, because I was the, you know, going through, yeah. uh, I, I felt that it was really important, particularly people, young people from migrant families, uh, to to ensure that um, that they are able to make their contributions in life. I don't know how or what. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, but I just thought maybe you know, being creative and music and theatre is one way of doing that. Yeah. Through education. Yeah. And so you you went and started teaching at a Catholic. Girls' college. Yeah, that was uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> How was that experience? So you've you've decided that you want to be a teacher. Yeah, you've got this you know, amazing talent as a um, singer, and you've said, "Okay, well, I'm going to become a teacher." How did all that you learnt at Melba and that whole creative process help you as a teacher? Look, uh, I think what it did for me was. Um, Give me the opportunity to um, um, impart that knowledge that I had learnt to 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 younger minds, and and um, it was really interesting. I, I, I guess um, I was looking for a job. I just sort of did my last year at the conservatorium, and 
you're not sure what you want to do, you know, you're not going to be a great musician. Uh, so you, you think of teaching and and um, and why? Because you want to be able to impart that knowledge and be and still be creative somehow. So anyway, I, I apply. I saw this advert at Callista Girls College in Springvale, so I went there and got an interview. I think it was about 21, 22 years old at the time, and um, the head uh, principal was a nun. She was fantastic, Sister Anne. Never forget her. I mean, she. <laughs> um, uh, gave me a great opportunity to, you know, we had a good chat and, and she said, look, you know, we're looking for um, a sort of a support music teacher and drama teacher and um, let's see how we go, all right. And uh, and I sort of said to her, well, look, this is the sorts of things that I'd like to do as curriculum. Uh, I think um, music and um, theatre are good ways to help uh, young minds develop um, and to explore all different paths, you know, parts of, um, you know, help them with their learning and, yeah. and their capacity to, to be open-minded about things in terms of the way they approach problems and, and look at it sort of multidimensional rather than one way. And I think music and theatre does that because you really need to think in, in so many different ways, yeah. you know. And, um, uh, and I, you know, I had a sort of a rough curriculum there and what I planned it to do and, and what and what the school wanted. So she gave me the job and it was terrific because what happened was, I guess, um, she made theatre and music compulsory for, uh, for all up to Form 3 or something like that. There was a music teacher and I worked with her. She was fantastic. So we started getting to all the school productions and all that sort of stuff, which was tremendous. And I think one of the interesting things, and this is coming back to um, why I felt... Um, you know, music and theatre are a good way to uh, even be uh, uh, a positive influence on 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 the more, those more academic subjects. Uh, the history teacher and I were sitting down one day and we we're just thinking about us oh, having some problems with these girls. I mean, they're just not getting the concept. They're you know, their their English uh, sort of English writing, writing language and writing skills weren't really great, um, and they were suffering. I mean, they. You know, they were understanding the concepts, but they really had trouble expressing it. And I said, all right, well, maybe we can do something about this. Let's um, think of it in a different way. Let's take the history topic or the subject you're studying, which was, you know, I think at the time was gold digging and, and gold in Australia or gold in Victoria. I said, let them, let's sit down and write a script and we'll take these kids out and we'll actually film it. We'll actually live it. We'll live living in the gold mine. We'll actually l- try and relive history and get them to write the script and yeah. relive the whole experience. Yeah. So do you think it'll work? I said, well, let's try. So we did that and it was just absolutely fantastic. These kids, you know, they sat down, they sort of went and did the research. That was number one, doing the research. So they really started to get excited about really. And I said, now you have to live this. So you really have to understand it. And you'll have to write something that's real. Um, so go out and do the work. Find out the types of characters, how they lived, what they did, what they wore, how they went about gold panning, all the whole thing. Create a story around this using your history books, okay? So they went and did all that. And it was just amazing. They produced these fantastic productions, which we filmed. And then it was incredible because they were writing things that were just really high standard. Mm. And it was coming from the heart. All right, so there was a few problems in terms of some of the grammar and that, but that was easily fixed. But the concept of telling the story was much deeper, but which then created even more interest for the young kids because they wanted to learn more. So they were 
jumping into the books, researching and finding things and then going back and doing it. So we developed this program called Australian Practical Studies, which was then recognised with the education department for a while. Right. As a curriculum. So then I started to apply that with, you know, with the maths teacher and with the science teacher to sort of use it in theatre or, or theatre or, you know, in a, in a creative approach to looking at subjects. So I think that was the beginning for me in trying to, uh, I guess, to make a difference in, in providing opportunities uh, and um, trying to uh, create a positive, I guess, out of something that sometimes people were experiencing or were having difficulties with. Engage, yeah. Engaging people in the education process. Yeah, well, engaging yeah. and discovering and um, getting to enjoy it at the same time. I think that was the fundamental thing, enjoy it. Once you enjoy it, then you'll go to all sorts of efforts to really understand it even more and, mm. and, and put put in the hard yards and work because you really want – you're enjoying yeah. what you're producing. Yeah. But this gave these girls an incredible sense of pride uh, and and some of these girls, you know, at, uh, you know, teachers were saying, oh, look, I don't think they'll, <laughs> you know, they'll go up to form five or six, that'll be it. You know, I don't think they'll be able to go beyond. There's no, you know – they're really having difficulties and some of them have just um uh, i remember at the time or after you know many years uh some of them achieved some extraordinary um heights and extraordinary positions from principals to teachers to all sorts of things yeah it was really good i was really i felt really proud i'm not saying it was just that subject but i think it was the 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 fact that we introduced uh, you know uh innovative ways of looking at problems rather than, you know, down the normal channels. Yeah. <laughs> tend to get bogged down in. So then your uh, your sphere of influence uh, broadened, didn't it? In 1989, you became the founding executive of the Australian Multicultural Foundation. When you think about, you know, your time as a teacher and those that you were trying to educate and and help solve problems, this was a much, much larger sphere of, of influence. In terms of the actual, um, the I guess, the aim of the foundation for our listeners, could you, can you explain what the, the aim of the um, Australian Multicultural Foundation is? Sure. Uh, look, I, I guess... Just prior to taking that role, I mean, after the teaching period, there was a number of other opportunities, I, I guess, that led me to, to that. that role. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and that was important because that was part of my uh, growth and, and, and stepping stone in a way and getting to understand the community we were and, and, and uh, a better understanding of um, where Australia was and where it was heading and the face of Australia changing in that in, in that, that time was really crucial. So uh, after Calister, I, I got a position with the Council of Adult Education uh, as a project officer and then became the coordinator of Creative Arts Department uh, for a couple of years where we were running courses, you know, for adults in, you know, four or 500 courses every semester all over Victoria and Melbourne on a whole range of subjects. And my area was creative arts. That was painting and, you know, um, music and uh, woodwork, all sorts of things. And I felt it was really important um, to help with, um, I guess, part of the marketing or or probably part of the, the whole thing about giving people an opportunity. I felt 
was really important to, and, and migration was starting to sort of increase in Australia at the time. And I felt there was a portion of our community that was actually missing out on these opportunities, these yeah. classes, because of, of they were run in English. So I came up with the concept of dressmaking classes and belly dancing classes and music classes and painting classes in different languages. So I found the the professionals in, in our community who could come and take these classes and they would come in, we would hire them and then would advertise in the different languages and then we'd get all these, you know, mothers who were sitting at home or ladies and, and men who were semi-retired or whatever um, who were, you know, were looking for activities but didn't know what to do. So they actually started coming to the Council of Adult Education. And, and that's, this did two things for me. One, it gave them an opportunity to be part of something um, uh, that was creative. But the other thing, it started me, it started a point where I really started to understand what integration was about. Yeah. You know, we, we have all these services at that time and and people were being excluded because whether it was language or culturally it just wasn't appropriate or catered for or we didn't even think of advertising or letting them know about it. And I'm talking about, you know, early 80s, late 70s, yeah, right? Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is interesting because what happened after that then? I think I organised my first multicultural arts festival for the Council of Adult Education and we held it in the city square. And we had hundreds of people from the office blocks, thousands just coming down and watching this. You know, we had the Argentinian dancers, we had food, we had the Greek musicians, we had the Turks, we had the Italians, we had everything, you know. And this all started because I started to put these classes together, uh, which created... Um, confidence for communities to sort of share their cultures and enjoy it and for others to appreciate it. And I started to see, and I'll never forget that first multicultural conference in the city square, I really started to see what Victoria was about. It was so diverse, so colourful. We didn't know. Yeah. We just had, you know, we had migrants. We had people from different cultures come here. But it was just that very notion of who are we, what are we, you know, and what do we have as a society? And I'll never forget the the excitement in people's faces, you know. And you know, you go, wow, what is this? This is amazing. But I said, well, this is happening all the time. I mean, these communities do this in their you communities. Just don't see it. We don't see it. Yeah. So this was an opportunity to bring it under some sort of mainstream or, or I guess, a bigger stage for everyone—a platform where everyone can come and see it and yeah. be part of it. That started a whole range of festivals after that, I guess. And with others as well, and and then I was invited to uh, with a colleague of mine to help uh, put together Australia uh, Victorian for the Victorian Arts, I think Ministry for the Arts, the first Victorian Multicultural Arts Directory. So a colleague of mine, she and and I uh, were given that task. So we put that book together for the Ministry for the Arts, which started to lead me into, I guess, more in depth issues around multiculturalism. Uh, diversity, uh, all of those sorts of issues and and how do we actually create a better place in terms of strengthening our integration and creating a stronger, uh, I guess, appreciation for who we are and the cultures and the contributions that cultures can make. So that was the beginning of it all. So when the job for the foundation came up, I actually was doing um, a piece of work for the Australian Bicentennial. I think we're 
I was uh, the Victorian or the Melbourne coordinator for these uh, 40 trucks, semi-pentechnicons, coming in through Swanson Street and opening up at uh, behind um, the Royal Children's Hospital in the park there in Parkville, yeah. a big educational, a moving exhibition it was right. that toured all around Australia. So yeah. I coordinated the Melbourne uh, aspect of it. And I was on site there and um, and I was sitting in my caravan one night and um, someone came to me and... Um, and it was my partner. She said, have you seen this ad? And I said, uh, no, no. So I looked at it and they were forming this foundation, Australian Multicultural Foundation, that was seeking a director. And I thought, oh, look, all right. So I was sitting in the caravan one night. So I just didn't have any t- nothing to type with. So I just had a pencil. So I just yeah. wrote on a piece of paper something <laughs> and I sent it in. And I, I put it at the end, oh, look, I'm quite busy at the moment. I've got this job uh, and I don't have the facilities. I'm sitting in a caravan. Can I put in a proper application later? <laughs> so anyway, I sent it in. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I did that, but I did it. They had about 80 to 100 applications. But lo and behold, the head, I get a call from the headhunters saying, oh, you've got an interview. Or no, yes, put in a new application. You can put in a second application. So I, I did that when I finished the job and then I got an interview. And I think I was interviewed about four or five times and, and and um, I'll never forget my first interview was with Sir James Cobbo, who was our former governor. He was the founding chair of the foundation. Yeah. Um, he was Supreme Court judge at the time, so I went to his chambers and uh, we had an interview and he asked me a whole lot of things and I said, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> I don't know if that went well, so I went back. Then I was called back again. And then I was called back again for the fourth time and this time I had to meet with Dame Beryl Beaurepaire, I think it was Bill Moyle, was the State Bank, Sir David Zyder and Sir James Gobbo. And I, the four of them said, oh, this is getting too serious. <laughs> so, was that? Did you find that daunting? I, I Look, I, I, I did, but I also found it really exciting. Yeah. I just thought, you know, this is good um, to see these prominent Australians so committed to Changing the diversity. Yeah. I thought, this is what it's about. Mm. Mainstream Australia... Uh, prominent Australians really saying, well, look, this is what we are, this is our future, uh, this foundation can play an important role in this. And basically um, the role was to promote a strong commitment to Australia as one people drawn from many cultures. Yeah. And, to, uh, and for me that was really important, promote a strong commitment to Australia as one people drawn from many cultures. And, and that for me was our First Nations people too. All of that, drawn from many cultures, this rich 50,000-year-old indigenous culture, you know, that's so important. And then cultures from that have come from far, you know, uh, from far and, and uh, have made this nation today. It didn't matter where you came from, England, Ireland, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter the time or place, right? It's just that we all have migrated other than our First Nations people. <laughs> that's right. Simple as that. Yeah. Now, and, you know, now we're sort of having this conversation around, oh, we came for, I mean, in terms of, you know, the migrants I'm talking about, you know, in terms of whether you come from England or Ireland or Scotland, it didn't really matter what time you, what period you came, mm. you came, yeah. you migrated, yeah. and so did everyone else. And for me, it was about how do you promote that strong commitment to Australia as one people drawn from many cultures and a great appreciation, a deep appreciation and respect for our First Nations people. Because that is so important in terms of who we are, mm. you know. So the challenge was on, I guess, to um, create that. And and I like the other bit because it said that, and then it said 
another couple of words underneath, by any means. <laughs> so achieve that by any, any means. means. And I okay. thought, I like that, by any means. I wasn't, you know, confined. I didn't mm. feel I had to follow an agenda here. By any means meant engaging with people, yeah. finding out, consulting, bringing people in, you know, making them part of the discussion, making them part of the discovery, listening to people, getting their views. You might not like some of these views, but you won't know until you hear them. And so I like that by any means. Mm. So we had a whole list of by any means, you know, in terms of what to do. And I guess then they said, um, all right, here's the file. We've just done some consultations, um, but here's the file. Here's a check for $3 million. Go and set it up. That was it. That was our core funding. Right. And I said, all right. So I went away. Um, I said, <laughs> I found it. They found an office in Carlton <laughs> and uh, it started. That was it. And I, so many questions because you've been doing this for the last 30 years. Yeah, it's uh, been a passion and not one day has been the same. In 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's been extraordinary because I really, um, I guess, uh, I, I don't know, for me, it was about engaging and working with people. One of the things I've always maintained in my life, if I was, I'm now in a position for the last 20 years, I guess, have been in a position where I have been um, advising on policy uh, that affects people's lives um, on on input into all sorts of different forms of legislations that have come out, um, you know, on areas of human rights, uh, equality, access, you know, integration, social cohesion, police affairs, a whole range of issues. Mm. And I've always felt, just in my as if in my teaching period and prior to that my student periods and in, in, in my childhood, um, if you don't engage and consult with people and really go out there and be part of it and really and, and make sure you understand what's being said and, and being a good listener, to advise governments or other people on any issue um, that, you know, you've basically have lost contact with because you haven't engaged, you... I would consider myself as a fraud. Yeah. People would say to me, look, you're at a level now, you don't really need to go out. You've got to send your workers out, people, managers, you know, consultants. They'll do all the work and they'll bring it in. I said, no, I need to be current. I really need to understand what people are saying because if someone says to me, um, we're going to do this, that, that, I can come back and say, no, um, this is what I've found out. This is what I understand. And this is current as of yesterday yeah. or the, a month ago. You know, this is something we really need to think about. You can get all the consultants in the world to go and do the research. That's fine. They do that. But by the time it materialises, it's about a month old, mm. two months old, three months old. Things are changing in this space all the time. And I'm not saying it's, it's the best way, but it, for me it's worked because it gives me a level of currency then to know what to do next in terms of what sort of you know, research do you commission what are people saying? How do you get communities to have an input into that work or that piece of research or into that, you know, public discussion in a way? So I think 
that's uh, a practice that I've tried to maintain all my life. Um, and that's why 30 years has gone so quickly because <laughs> it takes a long time to do this, yeah. to engage all around Australia and worldwide uh, on a one-to-one or group level on a continual, time, a continual basis. That was the end of part A of this interview. Part B begins right now. <laughs>